baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We need, and we haven't done this yet, to centralize our public health system. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. We have done exactly what needed to be done, which is provide and give an effective vaccine. The key for gun safety reform advocates is to think about this in the long term. These times when change happen, often brief, so you want to get as much accomplished as possible. This is KCBS In-Depth. We are all used to hearing about Red America and Blue America, but what if the country's real political divide is actually split along a four-way fracture? Welcome to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Menconi, and today on the program, we're going to be speaking with journalist and author George Packer, whose new book aims to trace the lines of political division that run through the nation as a first step toward patching it all back together. That book is Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal. And George Packer joins us now to tell us more about it. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So in your book, you suggest that America is not simply a country divided between two opposing political parties, but uh, instead four competing tribes, and that those tribes have grown so distant from one another that it's becoming difficult for members of one to recognize the others as their fellow countrymen. Um, Before we get to defining what those tribes are, though, you also suggest early on in your book that it was this very political division that has been largely responsible for America's failures in the face of COVID-19. And uh, so I actually want to start there because I think that might give us a better sense of the consequences of these problems that you're talking about. So um, help us draw that connection between polarization on the one hand and uh, America's pandemic missteps. Yeah, I think of them more as narratives than tribes. And then different tribes sort of gather around these narratives. And there's a little more fluidity than tribes normally have because narratives are are malleable and people can adopt different aspects of them. But your question's a good one. During the pandemic, we know the divisions that opened up between essential and non-essential workers, between um, red states and blue states, and between maskers and anti-maskers. And Trump had a lot to do with Uh, widening those divisions, getting a a shiv into them and just prying them open. But one that I write about is between experts and populists, between those who said, follow the science, do what the scientific experts say, and we will be able to beat back this pandemic. And those who said, no, the experts are constantly contradicting themselves. And anyway, who are they to tell me how to live my life? They don't know me. You're telling me to give up my livelihood, to wear a mask when I don't think I need to wear one. So I'm going to defy the experts because the people rule here. It's not the epidemiologists who are in charge of this country. So that division between expertise and populism was a huge factor in Americans being unable to come to some kind of agreement about what resisting the pandemic would mean for us that, so that we would not 
let it spread as it did spread. And also we would not create economic ruin for parts of the country and for workers who face that. And instead we were in a war of extremes, one extreme being follow the science, no matter what it says and where it leads. And one extreme being uh, we are the people and we refuse to be told what to do. And one line that was uh, striking from your description of this whole process is that we all became caricatures of ourselves and took the most extreme positions that whatever side we were aligning with uh, held. And that is a view that I've even heard from uh, a number of health officials. They felt that pressure, too, in a number of these debates, uh, especially the debate over uh, how quickly to send children back to school. I mean, we really did, on some surprising issues, find ourselves quite polarized. Exactly. We Each side drives the other into a kind of caricature of itself and a caricatured view of the other side. So, for example, when we were preparing for the new school year last summer, um, there was some willingness among a lot of school districts to reopen at least partially. And then Trump said, reopen or we're going to cut off federal funding for your school district. And that drove teachers unions and administrators and some parents and some scientists in the direction of absolutely not. It's unsafe. You're asking us to risk the lives of teachers. We're going to keep the schools closed. And as you know, the Bay Area went all the way with that position. New York City, where I live, had a partial reopening and tried to find a middle ground that it never really succeeded in finding. But that's a, an example of how the science itself became extreme. And I've read epidemiologists saying, we have seen positions taken that seem more political than scientific because of the a reaction to the other side, which is questioning the entire basis of the pandemic. Speaking with uh, Atlantic staff writer George Packer about his new book, Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal. And all of that is just another way of saying that this monumental national international crisis that in a different time may have actually driven us together and given us a sense of national purpose, instead did the exact opposite. And the lines of those fractures, the lines of that division, uh, you suggest, run down uh, four different national narratives. So let's bring those into the conversation now. And uh, I suppose let's start with maybe the older narratives that have held political sway for a bit more time in America. Uh, and uh, that would be uh, the, 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 the label that you give free America. Let's start with that one. Right. So my, my basic point is we all know we're two countries, red and blue. Every election proves it. That's, that's absolutely the, the reality we've been living in for 20 years or so. But I think each side is further divided into its own ideas of what America is and should be, the moral identity. The first one I call free America, which is the one that really held sway for 30 years or so from the beginning of the Reagan era. It's libertarian, it's anti-government, it's low taxes, pro-business, uh, deregulation. It's essentially a free market fundamentalism. Let the market have its say, and we will have freedom and prosperity across the board. Any interference is going to uh, begin to, to, to hurt the economy and also take away our freedom. Well, it was a very attractive uh, idea when Reagan gave it its sort of rhetorical uh, magic. But over the years, it has not followed on its promise. Instead, what we have is a separation of the country into extremes of wealth, 
and poverty, a hollowing out of the middle class, whole regions left behind because of, of, of industry going overseas or because of the, the, the brain drain. Uh, so that regional inequality has been a direct result, I think, of this narrative. And in the end, it, it just hasn't worked. Low taxes don't create jobs. They don't raise wages. The data are absolutely clear about that. And yet it's remained a kind of cargo cult orthodoxy of the elites of the Republican party. Something else has happened to the base of the party, but the leaders of the party and their business elite um, allies continue to push the narrative free America in spite of, I think, decades of evidence that it hasn't worked. All right, we're going to get to the next category in just one second. Real quick, want to reintroduce you and the program. Uh, for anybody just joining us, you are listening to KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Menconi. Today on the program, we're taking a cold, hard look at our fractured American democracy and considering what might be done to put it back together. Uh, bringing us that look is journalist and author George Packer, whose new book, once again, is Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal. All right, so we're ticking through the four different categories. Categories. Uh, the second one I wanted to talk about is smart America. And I suppose, uh, just to be clear, uh, so, some of these labels are hinting at how these uh, various narratives view themselves. So smart America, not not necessarily uh, so, sort of a, a self-serving narrative to some extent. Well, all of the four labels uh, express the value that each narrative claims to hold. Mm -hmm. Freedom in free America. Yeah. Smart America is the America of the professional class of its Silicon Valley in the Bay Area. In fact, it's a good deal of the Bay Area. Yeah. It tends to be strongest on the coasts and in the cities. Bill Clinton, to me, was the figure of smart America who brought it to the Democratic Party and, and to national policy. Basically, it says... The key to success in life is education. Uh, go to college, get a good degree from a good school, enter one of the information age professions because it's, an, it's a narrative of the information economy and you will have a good life and then your children will be able to, to do even better than you. So it's an optimistic narrative for educated people. What's wrong with it? I mean, it basically meritocracy is, is the key word of this narrative and meritocracy sounds like a good thing. We should be rewarded for our talents. The problem is it's become a kind of aristocracy in which people are born into this class rather than work their way into it. It's, it's just as hard for a poor American to get into a top university today as it was in 1954, which shows that even though the promise of equal opportunity that comes with this uh, idea of education as the key to life is attractive. The reality is something else. And instead we have a class that is adamant in preserving its advantages and passing them on to its children uh, by reading to them all their lives and playing classical music in the house from an early age and making sure they have test prep tutors around and coaching them on their college application essay. All that anxiety and pressure is a kind of family business. The family business is success. And smart America, which is really the successful narrative of the modern world, of global, the globalized world, uh, has only worked for families that um, in some way already had an inside track with the right connections, the right advantages. 
Yeah, I'm sure a lot of our listeners can recognize many of those trends that you're talking about right there, because as you suggest, they are alive and well here in the Bay Area. Um, All right, so those are the first two categories, free America, smart America. Then next, just to frame up these next two, you suggest that the, the, the latter two are, to some degrees, reactions to the failures of the former two. So let's talk about those next two. It's real America and just America. Real America is the America of Trump. Um, but it, I think it's John the Baptist was Sarah Palin who used that phrase, mm. real America in a speech in 2008 during the campaign. And it was clear what she was talking about. Small town, rural America, white America, working class America, Christian America. It was essentially uh, the people who, whose faces you saw at Trump rallies. Um, and it was a a reaction against, I would say, the failures of globalization as embodied in free and smart America. And the Republican Party found that it was not at all united. It was fractured between the business elites of free America and the more working class evangelical Christians of real America. And the party has not worked out that fracture. It continues to be divided that way, kind of by the head and the body of the party. Trump sensed which way the wind was blowing and exploited it brilliantly to get to the White House on the basis of the narrative of of real America, which is nativist, nationalist, uh, suspicious of of the world, suspicious of elites, um, and plays on kind of xenophobia and jingoism that gives some people the sense that they are the only real people and everyone else is somehow cutting in line or rigging the system unfairly against the people who are the backbone of the country, the real Americans. Yeah. And so then next we come to Just America, which uh, once again is reacting to the failures of the last uh, several decades. And uh, here we bring in uh, another strand of politics that will probably be familiar to the Bay Area, woke politics. Yeah, I don't use the word woke because I think it's become too pejorative, Mm. but just America is wokeness uh, personified in in an idea. It's basically the the rebellion of one generation against the parents. It's ironically, the boomers are now the parents who are being rebelled against. But what the millennials are doing is exactly what the boomers did in the 60s against the previous generation. Um, they're both big influential generations of Americans who've changed the culture and the millennials, the story that they have been told that there's inevitable progress toward a more perfect union, you know, even with our faults, they have come to believe is a, is a lie, is a false story that rather America is not inevitably progressing toward justice, but instead is fixed as a kind of caste system in which an oppressor class rules over oppressed classes. And the oppressor class is white and male, it's identity politics. Uh, and identity politics is the, the, the approach that Just America takes to seeing how our polit- politics shake out and to judging uh, people's views and judging um, the, the way in which they, the, the role they play in society. So it's a skeptical, even cynical narrative that is uh, a, a, a totally understandable reaction to failed promises and to ongoing injustices. But somewhat like real America, it has such a dogmatic view of who are the good and who are the bad and what is the right way and what is the wrong way 
that it it excludes more than it includes and it alienates at least as much as it attracts. And I think politically it's become something of a dead end because most Americans don't think in simple terms of group identity politics and monolithic group think and instead feel that they have a variety of different ideas and that they are many different identities. So I think its philosophical approach has cost it some of the support it it has and has had, for example, last summer during the George Floyd protests when it really reached its peak and had it, its big moment on the national stage. Speaking once again to Atlantic staff writer George Packer, his new book is Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal. So just to pause for a second briefly before we get to uh, your many other points, uh, just for any of our listeners out there that might be thinking to themselves, well, I don't really think I fall into any of those categories, or I'm not sure if I uh, recognize that in my neighbor or the people that uh, I am uh, meet in my day-to-day. What do you mean when you talk about these uh, political narratives? Are we talking about specific people here? Are we talking about movements? What should we be picturing when we talk about uh, these four great narratives? Yeah, what we should not be picturing is a portrait of the whole country. I'm not creating like a demographic study of America in which every American and every group of Americans is represented. Um, That's a, a different project, in some ways a more ambitious one. What I'm doing is trying to describe what I call the moral identity, the idea of who we are and what we should be that has been, have been most influential in say the last 40 years, which is for me kind of a crucial time frame from the seventies to the present when all these fractures began to get wider and wider. Um, and they then animate movements and they attract people, but people are more complicated than narratives. And someone might feel as if they subscribe to meritocracy and to smart America and yet sympathize with some of the causes of just America or might talk about freedom as free America does and yet feel as if real America is where they belong and freedom becomes something different to real America. It becomes something less about economic Uh, freedom and and deregulation and more about personal identity. So in other words, people are more complicated. These narratives are rather simple. And because they're narratives, they affect each other. They all come from the same society. That's something I wanna make clear. They're not in silos. They're constantly interacting, morphing, um, pushing each other toward or away from each other. And they leave out a lot. So I hope we'll talk about a narrative that I think is a more attractive one than any of these four, which I I hope appeals to more Americans as a unifying one. Was uh, one step toward uh, uh, setting the stage for that. Let's talk about the prime force that you see as driving all of these different narratives apart and why each one sees the others increasingly as enemies or at least as not recognizable. And uh, you suggest that that force is our, our, our sense that the promise of equality in the country has not been made good on. And we've seen that in many, many different forms. But sen- essentially, the lack of equality, the sense of a lack of equality in American life really as an animating force for uh, a lot of what we're seeing today. Exactly. Um, I think the fundamental fact of the last half century has been growing inequality. Um, it's mostly economic inequality. It's inequality based on education, on region, uh, on race. And it has 
has been become so extreme that we're going through a repetition of the late 19th century, the age of robber barons and, and of Leland Stanford. I mean, this we're, we now have our own robber barons. They live in Silicon Valley and Seattle. Um, and what, what Tocqueville wrote almost 200 years ago was that the thing that makes Americans so distinct is the passion for equality, the desire to be as good as everyone, to have the same status in society, the same rights and opportunities. When that is denied, as it's been throughout our history, we come into deep conflict with one another. The Civil War is an obvious example. The, the Great Depression produced more. Um, and I think through the last few decades, that's what we've seen in the competing narratives that have become a kind of zero sum struggle, a sense that each one denies the other, each one produces winners and losers. Um, and th there's not, there isn't room for everyone in any of them. And as a result, this kind of ferocious competition for status, for resources, for victory in politics and in the culture wars has become so intense that we have become ungovernable. Uh, we've become a country that can no longer come together through our institutions to solve our biggest problems. And the pandemic was a great example of, of a country that had ceased to be able to govern itself. All right. Uh, real quick, I want to remind listeners one more time that you are listening to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Today we're speaking with journalist and author George Packer about his new book, Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal, which maps out the political fractures that define these divided times. Um, we've been hearing about a lot of those fractures and the problems that they're causing, but let's bring the hope uh, into this conversation. So you mentioned that there is perhaps a a more wholesome, a, a more uh, a nurturing uh, narrative that might replace the other four that we've been talking about so far. What what are you hoping to see take shape? I call it equal America. Um, I think it's a very old narrative that has gotten submerged and is reemerging. I see a lot of it in in some of Biden's policies, his jobs plan, his family plan. What would equal America look like? First of all, it would restore the position of the working class to a decent life and a central place in our society. Instead of simply being a day-to-day -day struggle for survival, not having a college degree should not mean that you are a marginalized citizen with unequal status. Instead, with support from government and with greater labor power and with using government to break up or at least regulate the monopolies that control so much of our lives, um, Americans from say the lower 60% would begin to re-enter economic and political life with power. And that's something that they haven't had for a long time. The other half of it though, is relearning the art of self-government. We need to feel equal to govern ourselves. Without that shared sense of citizenship, we can't in this country. And part of Self-government means listening, debating, speaking to people we ordinarily wouldn't hear from, persuading, compromising, all those talents that are easily lost, and I think we have lost, including in the media, have to be reacquired. We have to relearn them in order to regain that art of self-government that Tocqueville talked about. Um, and it really does mean simply making sure you listen to people you don't agree with, reading stuff online that you know is going to go against your own 
sacred cows, but that might actually be worth listening to. Maybe a program of national service in which Americans from different backgrounds at a young age come together and learn to work together on behalf of the country. There are lots of ways, big and small, that we could teach ourselves to be democratic citizens. And I think we, ha we have to acknowledge that we've lost that facility and we have to regain it at the same time that we restore or create conditions of material equality that we've also lost. And sticking with that theme of hope, uh, I mean, you mentioned the Biden agenda. Of course, that's meeting uh, pushback fairly constantly at every turn. Uh, we think about the avenues for bridging some of these divides. I mean, we're geographically more divided than ever. So uh, rubbing elbows with our neighbors that are of different political persuasions is often uh, difficult to impossible for many of us. How hopeful are you that we can make some of these changes that you're talking about? I mean, listen, I'm 60 years old and I'm pretty realistic. Um, I don't expect a revolution. I don't expect overnight change. All I ask is that we acknowledge that we look in the mirror that the pandemic held up to us and acknowledge the face that we see and face the reality of its decline and then point ourselves in the right direction. I don't I understand that Washington is blocked and that there are big obstacles, both political and constitutional to what I think needs to happen. But if we're pointed in the right direction, and I really do think we're beginning to turn there, then that's the most important thing in the long term. And we'll fight the daily battles and um, lose some and win some, but at least we have to face the truth about ourselves and then point in a direction that might lead out of the, um, the, the the morass that we've gotten ourselves into these past years. Yeah. And uh, I, I suppose also taking a, a step back from this, this singular central issue that you've identified uh, of equality, you know, I think a lot of people would see different disagreements that are animating a lot of political life, whether it's the disagreement over political liberty, uh, abortion rights, um, education, you know, people feel very deep, uh, have deeply held beliefs about how children should be educated uh, in the classroom. And then we've touched on this, but, you know, also the role of racism in modern America. There are, are, are deep, deep disagreements about how important racism is and how much of modern American life can be explained by the role of racism. And uh, for individual people, um, I suppose simply making them more equal wouldn't necessarily make these disagreements go away. So is, is there more than a, 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 an economic divide that's going on? What, what happens to these deeply held beliefs when we become more e equal? I think some beliefs simply can't be... Uh changed and a head-on collision between fundamentally opposed values usually doesn't lead to one side or the other giving in it leads to lots of friction and conflict and digging in and that's where we are today so on those issues that you're describing which are which animate every day of our politics and are deeply important um i don't hold much hope for the left and the right to come to an agreement about critical race theory in the classroom or abortion. Um, those are the kinds of issues that almost seem designed to drive people apart. And the more we emphasize them, the, the less I think we're gonna be able to govern ourselves. The more we're gonna be, politics will become a kind of performance uh, theater in, a, in an arena where nothing much happens of, uh, of real consequence. 
I think Biden is right to put his emphasis on material conditions because that's where people can experience change, can see government working, um, and can have something in common with those who about about with whom they disagree vehemently about those issues you're talking about. If we can create at least some greater sense of, of equality on that level, I don't expect the other issues to go away at all. They shouldn't. But the temperature of the political uh, hatred, the temperature in the room will, will go down and it will be easier to then talk to each other as fellow citizens rather than as enemies. Yeah. I suppose in closing, maybe you you have an interesting perspective uh, as somebody who covers na- international issues and uh, knows what how other countries and people from other countries view America. And one of the interesting things that you point out is how American oftentimes we realize we are when we do go abroad. Uh, even despite all of our divisions, we go abroad and we realize, you know, I actually have a lot more in, in common with my countrymen than I thought. So maybe in closing, to speak to some of us who, who feel we really do have nothing in common with people that live far away from us and hold different political uh, views. W- what do you say to that? What are we missing about the, the real ties that bond us? It's a good question. And often they don't live that far away. I mean, that's a good point. They may, they may live right across the bay. Uh, you may feel closer to someone across the country than someone who lives um, a half hour's drive away. Um, and that's the nature of our divisions. They're really community by community, yeah. not region by region. Um, I have a passage in the book in which I try to describe a national character. It's a dangerous thing to do, full of stereotypes, but we do have a national character. And we realize it when someone else comes from abroad and says, you guys are exactly the same. I know you all, you're Americans, even if you disagree with each other. What is that character? To me, it all goes back to the the passion for equality. It's our informality. It's our bluntness. It's our rather crass popular culture that's available to all. It's our way of talking to waiters. It's our um, sense that, you know, what, what do all these little social niceties matter? Just, you know, give me, give me the food and let's have a conversation, but don't, <laughs> I don't want to have to be bothered with all these uh, careful social graces. We don't know how to behave in countries yeah. where there's a subtle uh, social fabric that requires all that. That is all about the sense that we are born equal and that we should all be on the same level. It has good and bad. I think violence comes with that too, but it's our character. And if we continue to pull ourselves apart, those are the ligaments that are gonna tear because they still hold us together. And I think the pandemic, because it trapped us with our fellow countrymen, it gave us a clearer sense of who we are as a people and that we are not entirely divided into two or four uh, mutually incomprehensible tribes. Yeah, well, some of those commonalities may be a place to start uh, national reconciliation in some of these conversations. This conversation has been with Atlantic staff writer George Packer, who's been telling us about his new book, Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal. George Packer, thank you so much. Thank you very much. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. 
baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app.